Hello and welcome back to Why Will No One Date These Guys with Naomi Guy and special guest performer Joel Guy under contract from the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. The more that I drink these seltzers with a splash from Trader Joe's, the more I just dislike them. I used to be under the impression that Trader Joe's like only did banger food. Yeah. And we've tried like so many things that are like less than satisfactory yeah. or in the case of that jalapeno limeade like rancid. Oh, that was so gross. Um, yeah, this we are trying this week. Can you read yours? Mine is we already I think we already tried that flavor. This week we're trying the seltzer water flavored with cranberry and lime juice with natural lime flavor. It's organic. As usual, could use some stevia. I'm nonplussed. It it, it just, tastes- just just drop some orange slices, drop some cranberries into your your seltzer water. Ooh, cranberry. You'll 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 get a better result. Get yeah. some ooh, drop some cucumbers in your seltzer water, sparkling cucumber water. Okay. That sounds good right now. Okay. Yes, you can you can save the money and save the environment by not using. Do you want to hear a really gross cucumber that, story? I don't like the setup or the context of this podcast. Was, Please go ahead. Was, so I like made cucumber water on like a Wednesday, and I was too lazy to take the cucumbers out of my water bottle, so I just kept refilling uh, it. So it just kept on being like cucumber water for like three days. And this is why no one making, will date this guy. Then it just started making fermented cucumbers, which are just not pickles because it wasn't like vinegary. But anyways, yeah, that was pretty gross. That was probably the grossest thing I've done in a while. This week, I'm going to share some interesting conversations that I've had on Bumble instead of doing highs and lows of the week. So we're going to finish up our conversation about crucial conversations But to start off, I'd love to give you several conversations I've had on Bumble this week. This guy's name is Joey. And I said, hi, Joey. Little smiley face. Mm -hmm. And he said, hello, little apple crisp. Mm. (laughs) He seems very aggressively Midwestern. And he said, I said, little apple crisp, question mark. And he said, I don't like using traditional names. I have so many I like to use. I said, no, I really dig it. And that was the end of the conversation. It's like the mutants from X-Men who are all like, we don't want the human names. We want to be called cooler names like Magneto and Toad. Hmm. Little Apple Crisp. I don't feel he's someone who respects other people. I feel one of the biggest metrics you can refer to is whether or not someone addresses you by your given chosen name or something like honey, sweetie, sugar, darling. Smushums. Smushums. It's, I mean, it's partially they could have forgotten your name already. Partially it's a. It's in my profile. Literally says who you're messaging with at any given time. In like a work environment. But the other part is like just general disrespect for the fact that you are a human person equivalent in value or greater than value to them. Yeah, it's frustrating and a little bit gross. The next conversation is with James. Ooh. I said, hey, Please James. Please don't date a guy named James. Not, not dating a guy named James. I said, hey, James. He said, what's good, Naomi? I said, just chilling, my dude. How's your day going? He's like, that's what's up. And I'm just doing homework. I was like, sorry to hear that. He was like, yeah, it kind of sucks. And then I just didn't respond. I was like, this is the driest conversation I've had in a very long time. And I live in the freaking desert. Like, I know dry. Damn. Like, I know dry. And that's just too dry. See, I thought if he was clever, you could have done something with the it is Wednesday, my dudes meme and been like, that. that's definitely a vibe I rock. That would have been repulsive as well. I would have I definitely not, not responded to that one. Mm. Don't tell a dating story. Tell a dating story. Well, I am still seeing a person, a human individual. Okay. They have a pulse. They will remain nameless, that's which after my conversation about refusing to name people sounds a little hmm, off base. 
out of touch, uh, not taking my own advice. Yes, I'm doing this because I have not yet gotten permission to use their name, so I will respect that decision. Yeah, we've just been vibing. She came over. We did homework together. She had she to, did homework. What were you doing? Uh, prepping this podcast episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was nice. We just vibed and ate snacks and were pretty quiet for about eight hours. No joke. She was here for about eight hours and we were just getting stuff done. And uh, it's nice. There's a scene in Pulp Fiction where Fooey, what is the name of the actress in Kill Bill? I don't know. Fooey. This is, I believe her name is Mia Wallace in the movie. The wife of a prominent mobster in the film, Mia Wallace, is having a conversation with John Travolta's character at a retro 50s diner. He's the boss's henchman. He's supposed to take her out for a nice time while the boss is out of town. And they get into a little bit of a rant about the nature of relationships. And she goes, I think one of the most important things in a relationship is the ability to just share a mutual like feeling of discomfort and openness. I think a lot of people who are uncomfortable in relationships try to fill silences. They try to constantly be doing things, and they ignore the fact that hopefully you can just be comfortable and vibe around your significant other. So yeah, I found that nice. I think that's a really good way of figuring out if you're in a good relationship is to see like if you if it's awkward like sitting in silence with that person. But that's just my two cents. One thing that I want to do with her, and I don't know what, what you think about this, is – I don't even know if you've even heard about this. There's a study that came out a couple of years ago called The 36 Questions That Lead to Love. And the idea was the study wanted to look at whether or not you could force intimacy between two people. That is so awkward. Not necessarily. The idea was does sharing emotionally vulnerable things with another person – make it more likely that they'll have a stronger emotional connection. And the general consensus, I believe, was yes, mutual vulnerability fosters closeness. If you think about it, a lot of the friends in your life, you probably have shared moments of vulnerability with. You probably trust them with things because you've trusted them with things before and they you know haven't betrayed that confidence if they have betrayed your confidence you probably aren't friends with that person anymore or no longer share intimate things with them but yeah like the, the study you know had some general questions of three sets of more intimate questions each time and it's kind of something that i've always wanted to talk about with a partner so you know it starts with pretty basic stuff like would you like to be famous in what way do you have a secret hunch about how you're going to die for what in your life do you feel most grateful and then gets into slightly more like specific things what is your greatest accomplishment in your life what is your most treasured memory what does friendship mean to you and then set three is you know complete this sentence i wish it was someone with whom i could share blank tell your partner what you like about them be very honest in your time saying things you might not say to someone when you just met share with your partner an embarrassing moment in your life what if anything is too serious to be joked about answer that for your partner of all the people in your family whose death would you find the most disturbing why like these are not things you normally talk about with people these are not the same as we were talking about in our last episode when people say how are you they don't want like an in-depth yeah. concerted answer there's very rarely the chance to have these like emotionally intimate conversations with people i'm not saying the goal of you know having these conversations is to like manipulate someone into a relationship with you it's more of just very rarely do you get the opportunity to have these conversations with people. Why not dedicate some time in order to reflect and, you know, foster a sense of openness? I don't know. Food for thought. What do you think? <laughs> Food for thought. I don't know. I Joel, you're approaching this way too clinically. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. 
Well, we are back to Crucial Conversations. This is part two. It's a fairly long write-up, so we split this into two parts. We still have our Jones root beer sitting around here. Now we have seltzer it's water. It's a little flat. A it's little, a little flat now. A little warm. It could use some vanilla ice cream, I would concede. It is no longer raining as aggressively, too, so the vibe has changed. But yeah. we'll try to get through this in a reasonable time. So if you recall from part one, the whole point of Crucial Conversations is building kind of the knowledge base and tool set necessary to engage with people in your life and talk about difficult things you might not always have an opportunity to do. Oh, that's weird. It's like you need to build up vulnerability and trust in individuals. If only there was a way that you could like build up vulnerability and trust in a partner. Huh? Crazy, right, Naomi? I don't know why I bring that up. But in the first like part, we talked about the basic principles of crucial conversations. And the second part gets into some specifics and provides some like really tangible examples of how this stuff applies to the real world. So um, without further ado, unless you have anything else, Naomi, let's do it to it. So, chapter six, master your stories, how to stay in dialogue when you're angry, scared, or hurt. So, this chapter explores how to gain control of crucial conversations by learning how to take charge of your emotions. By learning to exert influence over your own feelings, you'll place yourself in a far better position to use all the tools explored so far. The fact is, emotions don't just happen, and the author shared two claims about this. First, emotions don't settle upon you like a fog. They're not foisted upon you by others. No matter how comfortable it might make you to feel saying it, others don't make you mad. You make you mad. You and only you create your emotions. Now, others can obviously influence how your body like reacts, but ultimately it's the chemicals in your body that influence your emotion. And you can kind of train yourself to either avoid these emotional reactions or recognize when that's happening as we discussed in the first part. Second, once you've created your emotions, you only have two options. You can act on them or be acted on by them. That is, when it comes to strong emotions, you either find a way to master them or you fall hostage to them. Most times we harbor a negative reaction or a negative emotion in response to someone's behavior, and we justify it as a reaction to someone else's behavior. But the following actions are driven by these emotions. If you don't act on your emotion, your emotion will act on you. So the best individuals who are really good at dialogue, do something different. They aren't held hostage by their emotions, nor do they try to hide or suppress them. Instead, they act on their emotions. When they have strong feelings, they influence and often change their emotions by thinking them out. As a result, they choose their emotions, and by doing so, make it possible to choose behaviors that create better results. I think that kind of vibes with what I was talking about in the first part, where when I'm in situations that make me less than confident, less than 100%, I will literally say I am feeling less than confident. I am not less than confident. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable. Yes. I try to make it clear that the emotion is separate from my identity and like the weird spirit housed inside my body. So that's why storytelling plays a part. Stories explain what's going on and exactly what our stories are, the interpretations of the facts. They, they help explain what we see and hear and their theories used to explain why, how, and what. When you're delivering a presentation in a business environment and one of your team members laughs, you immediately tell yourself a story. Did he think I'm stupid? Did he mock my slides? Am I dressed funny? Do I have toilet paper on my shoe? The story translates to feelings of hurt, embarrassment, and that leads to action. You snap back, you ask them to leave the room, etc. And that's an entire path of action that begins from what you see and hear to what story you tell yourself to what you feel to acting on that feeling. So as we come up with our own meaning or stories, it isn't long until our bodies respond with strong feelings or emotions. They're directly linked to our judgments of right, wrong, good, bad, kind, selfish, fair, unfair, etc. 
If we take control of our stories, they won't control us. People who excel at dialogue are able to influence their emotions during crucial conversations. They recognize that while it's true that at first we are in control of the stories we tell, after all, we do make them up of our own accord, once they're told, the stories control us. They control how we feel and how we act. And as a result, they control the results we get from our crucial conversations. If you want improved results from your crucial conversations, change the stories you tell yourself even if you're in the middle of the fray. So what are the skills for mastering our stories? Well, in order to slow down your lightning quick storytelling process and the subsequent flow of adrenaline, retrace your path to action one element at a time. This calls for a bit of mental gymnastics. So the first thing you need to do is act. Notice your behavior. Ask, am I in some form of silence or violence? Am I muting myself or am I making other people mute themselves? Am I shutting myself down and making other people shut themselves down? When an unhelpful story is driving you to silence or violence, stop and consider how others would see your actions. In this conversation, am I yelling at my partner? And I'm deliberately going out of my way to make them feel bad. And I shutting down all attempts for them to share their side of the story. Notice your behavior. Second, feel. Get in touch with your feelings. What emotions are encouraging you to act in a specific way? Identifying your emotions is more difficult than you might imagine. In fact, many people are emotionally illiterate. When asked to describe how they're feeling, they use words such as bad or angry or frightened, which would be okay if these were accurate descriptors, but often they're not. Individuals say they're angry when in fact they're feeling a mix of embarrassment and surprise, or they suggest they're unhappy when they're feeling violated. It's important to get in touch with your feelings, and to do so, you may want to expand your emotional vocabulary. Why am I upset? scared or angry? Is the problem you're experiencing at this time driven by temporary feelings or long-term issues? Do you ever notice this, Naomi, where like your initial inclination, your initial reaction to something isn't your long-term takeaway? Where like initially someone does something and you're like, I'm very angry at their decision, but then in the long term, you're like, actually, I was more just like disappointed that they would stoop to that level. Yeah. And I think that takes a lot of like emotional intelligence to like understand that there's like differences. Like I have like a really hard time trying to decipher my feelings like between feeling anxious and feeling like excited about something. Mm. I think obviously that's easy to mix up, but that's the best example I can give. And I think it takes time to like reflect. And I feel like the more that you practice that, the easier it gets and the easier it is to decipher your feelings in in the moment. Yeah. And I think the next step, analyze your stories, is very similar to that. Ask yourself what story is creating your emotions. The first step to regaining emotional control is to challenge the illusion that what you're feeling is the only right emotion under the circumstances. That may be the hardest step, but it's also the most important one. By questioning our feelings, we open ourselves up to question our stories. We challenge the comfortable conclusion that our story is right and true. We willingly question whether our emotions, very real, the story behind them, only one of many possible explanations, are actually accurate. So not only should you try to question, you know, your emotional state, try to also question whether or not your assessment of the facts is actually accurate. If you think that your partner may be spending too much time with a coworker and you think there might be something going on, emotional, like actual affair, is it possible it's just because they're paired together and they work together? Is it possible that they're, you know, really good friends, but maybe you need to have a conversation about appropriate boundaries? Is it possible that that coworker is going through like a really bad breakup or like another traumatic life event and your partner is like stepping up and being like really supportive? There are a lot of possible explanations and often there can be a very straightforward story that the facts might tell, but there's room for ambiguity. There's room for other options that you should consider as well. 
Finally, see and hear. Get back to the facts. What evidence do I have to support this story? Don't confuse stories with facts. Sometimes you fail to question your stories because you see them as immutable facts. When you generate stories in the blink of an eye, you can get so caught up in the moment that you begin to believe your stories are in fact the facts. Spot your story by watching for hot words. Here's another tip. To afford confusing story with fact, watch for hot terms. When assessing the facts, you might say, she scowled at me, or he made a sarcastic comment. Words such as scowl and sarcastic are hot terms because they express judgments and attributions which create strong emotions. They are story, not fact. It's very different when you say, her eyes pinched shut and her lips tightened, as opposed to, she scowled at me. In you know one of the examples the authors give, they you know were talking about someone who was dealing with a boss that they felt was constantly insulting her, and they were looking more at what they felt the emotional response of the boss was compared to what he was actually doing. And when they had a serious conversation about you know how the boss was treating her, it was revealed that no, that was a general reaction he had whenever he was in conversation with someone, which is kind of clamming up and looking like really thoughtful and pensive. I had a similar example yesterday. I was volunteering for an event and I was helping set up an event. It was like a fancy dinner to raise money for an organ- a That's local right, organization. That's right, boys. Tammy gets invited to fancy dinners to work as a custodial. No, I thought I was going to be like tabling while volunteering. I ended up making floral arrangements for like three hours. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it was fun. Anyways, so the director asked me specifically to like save the boxes that the vases came in because they were going to use the boxes to store the vases for another event that they were having later this year. These boxes were, first of all, like not well, like they're cardboard, like they're easy to just like tear apart. Like it's not fat cardboard, it's like thin cardboard and the tape was just like messed up. So it was very easy to like slash them if you're opening them pretty quickly. So I was being, I was trying to do it as carefully as I could. It was taking me a little bit more time and he just seemed very angry. He was like, I'm going to give you another job. And I was like, okay, fine. And he seemed really aggressive, but when I like thought about it, I was like, okay, he's probably just like, this is a big event. There haven't been a lot of big events in a while because due to COVID. Mm-hmm. So he's probably just trying to get back into like, what is that term? Like you get back into the role of things. What is that? I think that's it. <laughs> sure. So he's probably feeling very overwhelmed. He's organizing the whole event and time is of the essence. So I bring up that example because you take in your own version of what happened. But if you think about it, that person may just be not considering your feelings because of something in the moment that's going on. Right. Obviously, that's not to say that everyone, like, everyone has their own perception of you. And, like, it could be a true perception or a false perception, but everyone has a perception of you. And you need to understand that, like, you can't control that. And you can't control, like, how other people see you. That's my TED Talk. Thank you for coming. And I think often, especially when we meet new people, we try to come up with an assessment of their character and personality fairly quickly. Yeah. But we have very limited information to go off of. Like, if we see someone speeding down the interstate, our immediate assumption is that they're careless or that they're, you know, a, a daredevil. That their wife's pregnant. they don't pregnant care about other people. And they but it have could to go. Be, yeah. You know, that their life's pregnant. It could be that their brakes were cut. It could be that they're, you know, late for work. And if they're, you know, late for work over time, they're going to get fired. Like, I'm not saying these are necessarily excuses, but they're explanations that lend more background and a better understanding of their character. So I would say just as a general principle, you know, don't use singular instances of someone's 
actions as like demonstrative of their character. Ultimately, I don't think you can really assess people unless you've interacted with them several times and kind of built up a category of experiences that you can, you know, kind of draw a general conclusion from. So again, the question of the chapter was how you stay in dialogue when you're angry, scared, or hurt. And they give a couple of examples of ways of counteracting it. You want to notice your behavior, get in touch with your feelings, analyze your stories, and get back to the facts. And that's very, very important because facts are far more persuasive than stories, right? Stories are something that people can argue with. Facts, not so much. Could be you have your facts wrong. I, okay, this is literally so like, it relates to me so much. I got home pretty late last night and I walked in the bathroom and the first thing that I see is the spider, the size of like a, a mini Tennessee. tarantula. Yeah. And I dealt with it and I flushed down the toilet. It's a goner now. But- I didn't wake up Joel, which I usually do, but I was like, it's three in the morning. I'm not going to do this to him. So I like dealt with it myself. But then I came into the kitchen this morning and I was describing it and I should have taken a freaking picture of this goddamn spider, put my hand up next to it or something because Joel just does not believe how big this freaking spider was. I can't say I've ever seen a spider similar to what Naomi's describing. It was like a freaking Tyrannosaurus Rex. You ever seen like a 1950s Rex. movie where like they, they blow up a bunch of insects and they start attacking small towns? That's what Naomi was describing. That's not what I was describing. <laughs> it was just a very large... We have daddy long legs at this house. We don't have like larger... No mommy long legs. No mommy. Yeah. Um, mommy long legs is what I'm looking for on my dating profile. <laughs> I need to leave. <laughs> and like occasionally we'll get like a black widow or something, but like I've never seen anything quite like that. And so the fact that I saw that and it like just reminded me immediately of a mini tarantula just like freaked me out. And Joel will never believe me. And I'm freaking pissed. Yeah. But now again, it's possible you have incorrect facts. And I'm not saying that's in regards to the spider. I'm just saying in general. And if you have incorrect facts, that's an opportunity for conversation too. Because you might think you have all your ducks in the row and if you speak with facts and someone says, well, actually, no, that's not what happened. Here's what actually occurred. That's an opportunity to correct the record as well. So try to speak as much as possible with statements that few people can disagree with. Next time that this happens, I will be keeping the spider in a jar until you Maybe witness buying it. a security camera. And yeah. she's going to like put up 15 around the house, record every angle, capture these spiders. I just want to know where they're coming in from. Well, let's move on. <laughs> okay. So chapter seven is another really important skill. And this is another acronym that I have written down on a note card tucked to my wallet. Now he's rolling her eyes at me. I'm what, not. What I'm just surprised you have so much in your wallet. Like it's my, a single note card folded okay, three times, wallet, two times. My wallet has information for me for like what to ha- what you should do in case you get pulled over by the police. Oh, and I like, like that. Yeah. Our mom gave it to us. What else do I have? I have my like cards, like my... Like, Debit cards and things and of that what, nature. What are the numbers on those cards? My license, my son card, my son devil card, like the bare necessities, and that's what I leave my house with. And I don't understand why you, you are, have you ever referenced this note card? Yes, it's such a freaking. I mean, nerd. this was more commonly used when you know I was in getting into job interviews or whatnot, and okay, I was nervous. Okay, that's understandable, or, yeah. but like I could not imagine just like. Maybe I don't clean my wallet very often. Maybe that's the takeaway. Maybe I should just like steal that like note card and bring it on dates with me and just be like in the bathroom, just like state my path. S-T-A-T-E. Okay. (laughs) 
let's move on. So chapter seven is all about speaking persuasively and not abrasively. How do you convince people without like putting them off? And the authors recognize that good speakers, good conversationalists have two good qualities. And the first is confidence, which is willingness to speak to people involved in an issue. Now, it's great that you're willing to talk about the issues you have with your partner to friends and family. But if you don't actually talk about the issues you have with your partner to your partner, you're probably never going to get anything resolved. Or there's going to be hurt feelings because they hear about these issues secondhand. So the first thing that good conversationalists, good people who can handle crucial conversations do is they're confident enough to talk directly with the person who they need to. The second is humility, recognizing that you have valuable things to say that others have valuable input as well. So that's mentally thinking about stuff like I do a lot of my household chores around the house, but my partner works 60 hours a week. That kind of explains why they don't participate as much in household chores. That said, you know, it's still worth discussing. You know, it's not as though household chores are easy and that you as someone who does a lot of household chores probably have a job of your own. So consider the other facts of the situation. It's important to be confident, but also recognize that there are other valid viewpoints as well. And then you need to have a style that combines safety as well as like straightforwardness. You need to practice them so you're not implementing these skills for the first time with the biggest issue you face at the moment. So the book gives a really good example that's relevant to our podcast, which is a wife finds a receipt from a shady hotel near their house in her like husband's wallet, maybe on the credit card statement. She starts berating her husband when she comes home about it and accuses him of having an affair. This is a bad move. It could be that she's correct, but there are some big leaps in logic that she used to reach that point. So the authors argue that the best way in order to talk about these difficult to discuss issues is to state these issues. And the acronym stands for share your facts, tell your story, ask for others' explanations, talk tentatively, and then encourage testing. And let's walk through this. Encourage STI testing? Yes, exactly. The the, the guy family is firmly behind STI (laughs) testing. Go get tested today. We'll give some links to clinics in our podcast description. So the first thing is start with facts, as we just discussed in the last chapter. The wife might say something along the lines of, I found a receipt in your pants from a, for a motel near here. I don't recall you mentioning visiting a motel recently. The reason you start with facts, as we've already discussed, is that facts are the least controversial thing. Like, it's not going to typically hurt people's feelings as much if you share facts compared to your interpretation of things, because then you're making accusations about their character and losing the mutual respect we discussed in part one. Facts the most persuasive thing, right? It's really hard to, like dispute a fact compared to an opinion someone has, and facts are the least insulting. It's not going to jeopardize your relationship as much if you share a piece of receipt material compared to, again, your own personal biases. The second thing you do is tell your story. Explain the narrative you've created based off of the facts you have. The wife might say something along the lines of, I'm concerned you're hiding something from me, and I don't know why you would do such a thing. Now, you can contrast that to maybe a better example. The first example works, but again, there's an accusation already implicit in it. And the authors argue that something better might be, I know we don't always need to share things in this marriage, and I like how much financial freedom we both have, but something like this seems worth mentioning, and I'm confused why you wouldn't bring it up. I just wonder, you know, what's going on here. 
The third thing is asking for others' paths. Can you let me know what's going on? It could be you hear some lies. It could be you hear some truth. There's a bunch of explanations. You know, he may have gotten super drunk with friends, felt bad about it since he knows you don't like him going out with friends. And so he got a hotel room nearby to sleep it off. Uh, maybe his brother is on the ropes with his wife right now and he bought him a room for a night since he didn't have a place to stay. Uh, maybe he was super cold and he bought a room for a homeless person on the street, but finances are tight and he didn't want to reveal that to you. Maybe he picked up the receipt as trash when he was walking down the street and meant to recycle it, but just hasn't gotten around to it. Those are, you know, all reasonable explanations. They might be things that are discussed. The important thing is that individual, your husband, is sharing information that can now be tested and verified if all your doubts aren't immediately answered, right? You shared your facts. You shared your interpretation of the facts. Now you're getting, hopefully, facts that can be verified back from that person. Now, you also then follow that up by talking tentatively. Don't be too hard or soft in how you tell your story. You want to use tentative language and not accuse people or make your story out as fact. Use phrases like, I'm beginning to wonder if, some people are saying, in my opinion. Too soft would be, maybe I'm just too paranoid because you're already attacking yourself and you're not like standing up assertively. Too hard would be, you keep lying or hiding things from me. Just right would be, I don't think you've intended this, but I'm feeling left out of important parts of this relationship. That's something that's assertive, but also doesn't make accusations of that individual. I feel statements are really helpful here. And I hate this because this is something I learned in like second grade, which is like resolve disputes by sitting down. People mean I feel that, but it doesn't need to be that formal. It can generally just be a very casual middle of a conversation. I feel sometimes like dot, dot, dot. And so it's not, you know, something where you need to sit down, you know, hold hands and ring a bell when conflicts are resolved. It can be, you know, just implemented gradually into a conversation. I still use I feel statements. I think that they're really important. I don't know if they necessarily like fix all of your issues, but they like portray how you're feeling pretty well. Exactly. So I would recommend them. I'd recommend a good I feel statement. Good to hear. The last step is encourage testing. Offer options to test the validity of your story. So invite opposing views from the person. So if you've come up with a story and they've offered an alternative and you didn't think that that alternative made a lot of sense, then you want to, you know, give them the opportunity to provide, you know, a counter opinion to that opinion. Mean it, right? Use phrases like there's nothing more important to me than hashing this out. And often if it's a really important thing, they probably want to make sure that it's resolved to your satisfaction as well. And then play devil's advocate. Say things like, I know there are other explanations than my own. Offer, you know, kind of the safe space and, you know, admit that maybe you don't have all the facts, you know, be openly honest about that. And the book gives, you know, like an example dialogue. So you can sort of see how this fits together. This isn't, again, meant to be clinical. It's supposed to be a very natural process, but you want to kind of mentally walk yourself through and identify where you are in the conversation and the additional steps you need to take. So here's an example of Bob and Carol. Carol found a receipt or something, or maybe it's a state, I think it's a statement on a credit card bill. And it's talking to her husband, Bob, about this. Bob comes in. Hi, honey. How was your day? Carol says, not so good. Bob says, why is that? Carol says, I was checking our credit card bill and I noticed to charge you $48 for the goodnight motel down the street. Side note, do you remember the Simpsons, how they had like the sleep easy motel? Yeah. It's always like sleazy motel. Yeah. That, that is the name I always go for when thinking of like creepy places and bad parts of town. <laughs> sleazy motel. So the first thing she did was she shared facts, right? She, she was not snooping. She was, you know, just casually looking at the credit card bill as most people do in relationships to review finances and saw something that looks weird. Bob says, boy, that sounds wrong. Carol says, it sure does. Bob says, well, don't worry. I'll check into it one day when I'm going by. So Bob potentially is innocent, potentially is trying to cover it up, but like is saying something that seems like he isn't really engaging with the issue. 
So Carol says I'd feel better if we checked right now. Bob says, really, it's less than 50 bucks. It can wait. Carol says it's not the money that has me worried. So now she's voicing the concern. She's not making accusations. She's just elevating this and making it clear that this is something that she cares deeply about. Bob says, you're worried? Carol says, it's a motel down the street. You know, that's how my sister found out that Phil was having an affair. She found a suspicious hotel bill. Fuck Phil. Fucking (laughs) Phil and Melinda banging in the sleazy motel down the street. So there she is sharing a story tentatively. She's not again making accusations. She's just offering, you know, a reason she might be concerned. I don't have anything to worry about, do I? What do you think is going on for this bill? And she's opening up an option for her husband, Bob, to explain his own path. Bob says, I don't know, but you certainly don't have to worry about me. Carol says, I know you've given me no reason to question your fidelity. I don't really believe that you're having an affair. That's a contrasting opinion. It's just that it might help put my mind to rest if we were to check on this right now. Would that bother you? Encouraging testing, encouraging the opportunity for him to also explore the space. Bob says, not at all. Let's give him a call and find out what's going on. So again, this was a crucial conversation. A wife potentially thought the husband was cheating on her. She did not blow up. They did not get into a screaming match. This did not end in divorce. This was them calmly and appropriately discussing a potentially high-octane issue. I think that's a really good example of this dialogue. And it's natural, too. Again, it does not have to be, you know, step by step by step. It is, you know, just working these ideas and concepts into a casual conversation. So chapter eight is exploring others' paths, how to listen when others blow up or clam up. So one good example is maybe you don't like your partner's new friends. Naomi, you're dating a guy and he's a lot of really attractive female friends. You think that they maybe are flirting with him when they go out. You feel your partner isn't shutting that behavior down. You see them wearing revealing clothing, mainly around him. You see them texting late at night with suggestive content, mm-hmm. and they tend to ignore you when you're both out together. What do you do? Um, well, I've been in this situation. <laughs> I've actually been in a similar situation to this. Let's talk about what I should have done. <laughs> Let's do that. So the reason this section is about listening when others blow up or clam up is if you start making accusations, most likely your partner is going to react. Yeah. Either they're guilty and they want to distract from the fact that they're guilty or they're innocent and feel insulted that you would think of their friends in such a way, right? A natural reaction would be probably to emotionally react. Now, hopefully the partner has also done some training with crucial conversations and knows how to express themselves appropriately, but that's not a great assumption for society. You could assume everyone else has really poor conversations. I skills. think I'm just going to make any guy that like wants to pursue me read this book before I begin a relationship with him. Uh, it's going to be like a prerequisite. That sounds good. Yeah. Hmm. It's not so crazy now that I'm like, hey, what if you had a conversation with your partner about 36 questions that lead to greater intimacy and trust? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you probably have a pretty strong argument to make, but it doesn't matter because this is a crucial conversation. The likelihood your partner is going to blow up or play dumb is high, and they might be in the right. They might see these people as siblings, might never have thought of them as flirting, might really enjoy the relationship and react poorly when you even broach the possibility of an affair. So the first important thing is to be sincere when talking. Invite people to share what's on their minds. Be also curious. Make it safe for them to tell their stories and follow up on even vague answers. So a potential dialogue would be you saying, hey, how's John at work doing? We can also say, Melinda, how's I'll Melinda be, at work doing? I'll, I'll be the other person. Oh, uh, fine, I guess. Just fine? I thought he had a procedure this week. Oh, yeah. I think it went well. He hasn't said anything. Now, the reason, of course, you're asking is because it seems that there's some kind of connection between the two. Yes. So you want to stay <laughs> curious, Melinda. keep engaging, don't <laughs> nag. Oh, that's weird. I thought it was pretty big and he'd be out for a while. 
Yeah, I guess that is weird. I'll ask tomorrow about it. So you need to be patient, except that sometimes people don't want to talk. Alternatively, they'll open up too much. But this can be stretched over multiple conversations, too. So like, you don't always need to resolve the issue immediately the same day. And it's far more natural if you broach the issue multiple times to make it clear that this is something that's been on your mind. And I think that's something that you need to understand is that if something is bothering you and your partner shuts down, we're talking specifically in a romantic relationship right now, this could actually just be for any type of relationship. If you keep bringing up the same issue that you're having and you keep coming back to it and they are not validating your feelings about the subject, that's a red flag. And you should understand that you are clearly communicating and you are making sure that you are having crucial conversations. And if they are not willing to talk out issues that you are having issues with, Maybe rethink your relationship with that person, whatever well, with that status in mind, it is. Here are a couple strategies to help them open up. Because again, not everyone has formal conversation training. Not everyone knows how to appropriately communicate. This is something that you may have to initiate. So if people don't want to talk, you may have to AMP things up. Oh, look, another acronym. Man, these authors are good at this. So AMP is A-M-P-P, and it stands for <laughs> asking to get things rolling. You said P-P. Mirror to confirm feelings paraphrase to acknowledge their feelings, and then prime them when you're getting nowhere. So the first thing is ask to get things rolling. Say a partner asks you if you like their new dress or if you find it too revealing. You reply something along the lines of, what do you mean? I'd like to hear your concerns. Now, if the partner's bringing it up, most likely they've gotten the feeling from you in the past that you don't like it when they wear revealing things out in public. So the important thing is to immediately open up the floor for dialogue. You want a mirror to confirm their feelings, confirm their emotional state to make sure that they're being honest and ask you know questions. Be like, hey, you say you're fine, but you look a little tired. Are you okay? You've seemed a little stressed at work recently. Don't make any accusations, but just say, I feel like you look a certain way and you know, give them the opportunity to acknowledge that. You can paraphrase to acknowledge what they're saying. Have them repeat what they said to clarify where they stand on things. So say something like, you seem to think I don't like it when you wear short dresses. Is that correct? You know, it's hard for them to dispute when you give them back exactly what they said in a different form. And then finally, prime when you're getting nowhere. Offer up options, attempt to demonstrate you know what they're thinking. Now, this is kind of a last-ditch approach. You don't want to put words in their mouth, but if they are not opening up, if they refuse to have these conversations, often it's good to give them a viewpoint that they can either build on or refute. So be like, do you think that I judge you on every outfit you wear? That I don't want you looking good in public? Is that the concern? Yes, I don't want you looking good in public. It's true. Nami wants me to dress like a hobo. She's like, Joel, you get to wear potato sacks and nothing else. <laughs> You can't even punch holes. You just have to hop around covered in a potato sack. <laughs> it's like a potato sack race every single day of your life. So yeah, ask, mirror, paraphrase, and prime. So you've gotten people to open up and share how they really feel. Well, what do you do once they've shared their opinion? Well, there's another acronym, Naomi. It's ABC. Agree, build, and compare. So agree is, if you agree with what they're saying, agree with them. Don't argue. A relationship should not be like constant arguing and bickering. Often there's going to be a lot you agree on. If they say, hey, I feel like you've been constantly critical of my clothing choices and I just want to make sure this is okay with you, be like, you're right. I've been critical of your clothing before. I overstepped my boundaries and I apologize for being controlling, right? If you accept that that is a valid interpretation of facts, you know, don't push it further. Try to move beyond the issue and genuinely apologize. You also can build. So if people leave out crucial elements of the story, mention it. Don't tell them that they're wrong, but agree with what they initially said to add in your piece. 
So if they say, I think you're being super controlling, be like, I think that may be true. In addition, I noticed that I'm commenting way too much on your food choices. And I apologize for whatever reason, you know, I was raised in a specific way where like my family thought it was helpful if we like told other people how they looked or what they were eating. Yeah. That guy was a freaking asshole. Okay. Who? The Reddit. Po- the the oh, that yeah. <laughs> yeah from our last episode well i noticed okay i i worked in a restaurant with a lot of koreans and apparently a big part of korean culture is constantly commenting slash complimenting you on your weight and that can get really awkward because you'll come in and they'll be like hey have you gained weight and sometimes they mean it as a compliment like oh you look so like healthy, healthy and robust yeah. and other times it can be kind of pointed like you fat so uh, it's difficult to kind of like parse where they stand on it but yeah it can be a cultural thing and so it's important to you know acknowledge that and understand where those feelings are coming from totally separate story totally off topic but i need to share this story yesterday i went was like at a party and i ended up leaving with three guys and like my friend they were like hey let's go to in and out i was like yeah for sure so like we ended up going to in and out and like I wasn't hungry and she wasn't hungry. It was kind of just like we needed to leave the party because like we felt like it was just getting like weird vibes. So we were like we left and we were at in and out and they were like it's in our culture. It's like bad to like not eat in front of us. And so I was like, this is so weird. So we ended up like eating French fries and I was like, I'm not even hungry, but like I have I feel like I have to be eating this right now. But yeah. Only one person ended up like actually eating because one of them was on a diet and one of them was a vegetarian <laughs> and huh. then they're all Muslim. Interesting. Yeah. I hope in and out fries their fries and vegetable oil. I hope so too. So keep in mind, building doesn't mean that you have to beat yourself up. You can provide additional context. Be like, you're absolutely correct. I do comment on your clothing choices. Please keep in mind, though, that I comment on pretty much everyone's clothing choices. You know, I have a background in fashion and I enjoy like helping people be better dressed. I'm not saying that excuses you from being an asshole, but again, it's additional context that helps maybe alleviate some of their concerns. The final thing is comparing your viewpoint to others. Don't say they're wrong, say that you differ. So return to the state acronym where you share your facts, tell your story, ask for others' paths, talk tentatively, and encourage testing, right? All these concepts bleed together. <laughs> Again, you're not disputing what they're saying. You're just offering an alternative to what they're saying. And you can come up with, you know, a better interpretation of events by mutually expressing how you really feel. Okay, chapter nine. We're getting close, Naomi. Chapter nine is moving to action. How to turn crucial conversations into results. The big question is how you turn ideas into action. It's great if people are having open quality conversations, but bad if nothing is ever done with that new perspective, new information. The authors, you know, found this a lot in business where there would be good conversations, but then like nothing was ever done after there were like serious conversations about, you know, how the company was spending money, about the number of layoffs going on, about certain vendors people didn't like. So why isn't stuff ever accomplished? Well, often people have unclear expectations about how decisions will be made, and they do a poor job of acting on decisions that they do not have unclear expectations on. Talking ultimately does nothing. Decision-making is a skill completely different than talking, and you have to be able to like put stuff into practice. So it's important that you come up in, especially relationships, the ability to decide how to decide. And I'm not saying, again, that this seems to be a formal conversation, but at some point you should probably talk to your partner about how stuff is delegated you know, in the household, in the relationship with friends and family, etc. So there's a couple of different ways you can make decisions. You can command, you can consult, you can vote, and you can you know, get consensus. 
So command is putting someone in charge, which is really helpful for low stake stuff. So for instance, if you and your partner have to send out a bunch of holiday cards each year, maybe one person gets complete control over what's said in those holiday cards. And switch off every year. Potentially do that. Now, it's important that you make sure there is an equal division of labor, but you know, take this low-stake stuff and evenly divide it up with the partner. Maybe one person makes all the decisions for buying the gifts for people. Maybe one person you know, does all the wrapping, and they get to decide how stuff is wrapped, you know, what the cards say, all that good information. Don't pass out orders arbitrarily, but do ask which elements are flexible, can receive input, and do explain why these orders are necessary. So if you're in charge of deciding what to buy people, you can ask yourself, you know, do I need to make decisions in every single thing? Can they make the decision for, you know, our friend Bob or whatever and explain to them why it's, you know, important that we get all the holiday shopping done by a certain date and that one person is in charge of things. It's just an example. You don't necessarily need to have it as formal as this, but often it's a good way to make sure stuff gets done in relationships and you don't miss out on anything. Second is consulting, talking to parents, friends, family about stuff with ambiguity, issues where you recognize the validity of both opinions. So... I think especially in relationships, there can be times when both partners have equal arguments for the validity of their behavior. And it's difficult when you're in the middle of the situation, even if you're processing it with you know the principles we've discussed about in this book, to determine whether or not either of you has a better opinion and if there's a solution that can meet both of your needs. So consulting is really useful. Talk to the people around you in their life, you know, people who have had relationships, people who see your relationship and know what's going on there and try to figure out what they think the best answer is. I think that's a really good tip. I would say that like it's kind of sometimes hard when you keep your relationship like away from others, if that makes sense. Like if mm-hmm. you have like a more private relationship and you don't spend a lot of time with friends or family, things of that sort, and you spend a lot of time like alone and it turns more into, instead of consulting with your friends and your family and things like that, it turns into you telling your side of the story. And I think that that can be very dangerous because yeah. a lot of people don't like to admit that they're wrong. And so they tell their version and in turn, it makes them look like the good guy and the other person look like the bad guy. That's completely fair. Now, there are some caveats to consulting. You should never pretend to consult. This is especially important in a business sense, but don't like say, hey, I'm going to go talk to my friends and family about this issue and then like just come up with your interpretation. That's like, oh yeah, my dad said this. You should always announce that you're going to go talk to people. Don't keep it secret that you're doing that. You should also report that, you know, what they said. If they tell you something you don't want to hear, you should still report that and be like, I was thinking X, but then, you know, my parents said Y, and I guess, you know, they may have a point there. And don't let whatever the decision they've, you know, said trickle out. Don't let them tell your significant other what they said. Tell them directly to yourself. It's not a great show of confidence when everyone hears stuff secondhand. It's also not a good opportunity to show that, like, you are trying to actively engage individuals. Also, another good way for decision-making is voting. Unfortunately, that doesn't work too well in a relationship with two people, but it can work really well in a family environment. So Everybody who doesn't want to be in this relationship, say I. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really good for group activities and issues where everyone is roughly equal in authority. I was thinking maybe for polyamorous relationships at times, but polyamorous relationships, I think, can be kind of weird. relationships. Where often there's like a center couple and then like other people who yeah. are kind of, you know, on He's the like side. like your primary. And then- yeah. But I do think it works really well for like family dynamics. So for stuff where you might have two parents and then, you know, a couple of kids, it's a good opportunity to 
cut down the number of options on, say, what to get people for Christmas or who to invite to your wedding or where to go on vacation. You know, the parents ultimately should have some authority because they're the ones who have the budget, have to schedule time off work, have to coordinate all the plans. But if, you know, there are 20 different options for vacation, voting is a really good way to pare down the list to the options, you know, people actually genuinely care about. You definitely should weigh the consequences of voting because if you hold a vote and the result like isn't what you want, that can be really bad. Because then you have a solution that no one really wants and only, you know, one or two people benefits from. And you also shouldn't cop out with a vote. Don't replace, like, open conversations with just democracy. That can hurt people's feelings. And it's not a great opportunity to show that you genuinely value, you know, their opinions if you try to, like, mathematically for certain outcomes. Final option is consensus. Making sure that everybody involved in the decision is happy with the final result. We talked about cribbing you know, committing to mutual purposes and finding a solution that works for everybody. Consensus is really, really important for high stakes issues that are complex or everyone must agree. So in relationships, especially like when to have kids, the level of involvement of parents in a marriage, whether or not to abort, those are all like really high stakes, intense issues. And like, you do need consensus unless you have consensus, like, oh boy, you're going to have some, some really rough times ahead in that relationship. So the whole point of like talking about these options for decision making is you should understand what your options are and then decide when making decisions what the best one to use is. And there's four questions you can ask. Who cares? You shouldn't involve people who don't care in a relationship. (laughs) Who cares? Right. Like if one person is in charge of like wrapping gifts and like you're concerned that like maybe your partner – is worried about the quality of your gift wrapping, ask yourself, do they actually care about the quality of your gift wrapping? Has anyone ever commented on like how bad your gift wrapping is? Ask who knows. As you were saying earlier, don't involve people who contribute no new information. If the relationship is kind of like closed off, you probably shouldn't bring in other people because you're probably going to get to a situation where one partner is representing the issue in a way that makes themselves look better. Don't drag in your friends just because you know that they're going to back you. Also ask yourself who must agree. Whose opinion is relevant here, especially if their help is needed? How many people is worth involving? So basically, there's four questions for implementation. Who does what? By when? And how will you follow up if you want to get stuff done? If you've come to a decision, ask yourself, who's going to be involved here? What are they doing? When are they going to accomplish this? And how will you make sure that like it's resolved to your satisfaction by a certain time? We talked about how this is a book for business, and that's especially important when you're ne- like negotiating raises. Often there can be people giving you the runaround saying, oh, I don't actually have the authority to approve that. I have to talk to my boss. I need to make sure that you know HR is informed of this. I need to make sure your coworkers aren't pissed off. But it's really simple to overcome that by having like just this checklist formally written out in an email somewhere saying, hey, Bob is going to talk to Carol in HR. They're going to do this, you know, have a conversation about raising my pay to match other people in the same category and other positions. We're going to do this by, you know, two weeks from now, and I'm going to follow up within two weeks to make sure that it's on track or that it's already been completed. And the same thing for relationships, you know, the question might be who, well, both partners are going to actively work that what are they doing? (laughs) Keep the house cleaner. When are they going to, you know, have a clean house for, you know, their friends when they come over for D&D night by the end of this evening? And how are you going to follow up? I'm going to check up an hour before they arrive to make sure that everything's on track, right? Very easy mental checklist. Who does what, by when, how you follow up. It's a great way to, you know, delegate kind of responsibilities and make sure stuff gets done. Okay. I did have a little bit to talk about in chapter 10, but honestly, I would suggest that 
People pick up a copy of this book, keep it on their shelf, and review chapter 10. Chapter 10 is putting it all together, tools for preparing and learning, and it's a lot of examples of dialogues and how to prepare for crucial conversations. Just as a brief summary, the big thing for crucial conversations is you want to start with your heart, focus on what you really want, refuse the sucker's choice. Learn to look, looking for when a conversation becomes crucial, identify safety problems, and look for own style under stress. Make it safe, apologize when appropriate, contrast to fix misunderstanding, crib to get to mutual purpose. You want to master your stories, retrace your path to action, separate fact from story, tell the rest of the story. State your path, share your facts, tell your story, ask for others' paths, talk tentatively, encourage testing. Explore others' paths, amp, ask me or paraphrase prime. And then move to action. Decide how people are going to decide and document decisions to follow up. And they give some really good examples of dialogues, you know, between families, between boss and coworker, boss and, you know, uh, or I guess colleague and colleague. It can deal with really big issues like harassment in the workplace, failure of partners to contribute in relationships, parents who aren't getting along with their kids. This is like a really useful book. And I found like applications over my multiple jobs across the years and with interpersonal relationships with other people. And I think that there's a lot to love about it. Pick up your copy at thriftbooks.com. It's a great website that does a lot of used books. You don't have to go and buy it at full price and support Amazon or things of that nature. Um, Yeah, what a lot of people don't know is the reason it's called Amazon because they chop down the rainforest and turn that into the, the paper for the books. (laughs) Um, every time Amazon gets another billion dollars, you know, the Amazon loses another billion acres. Anyways, Joel, is there anything else you want to say to wrap up this episode? Again, I hope this wasn't too boring. I think it was quite interesting and I learned a lot. Nami was on her phone for 95% of this. That is just not (laughs) false information. Yeah, I, 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 again, I think one of the questions we've asked ourselves when we started this podcast was how do we talk about sex education and appropriate relationships without getting into the actual skills needed for these things. And I think, you know, the books we've discussed so far have been really good examples of, you know, skills that you can utilize in order to keep yourself mentally healthy, keep your relationships comfortable, talk and honestly communicate with people. I mean, yeah, I hope people either check out the books or listen to these summaries and take away some some good advice. So I personally hope you have a good week. I don't know about Joel, but I hope that you have a good week. Sorry, Um, I was on my phone. (laughs) I hope everyone writes down some crucial conversation information and puts them in their wallet because they are freaking nerds. Um, I think that's everything. Love you. Don't get murdered. Bye. Stay frosty. We have many thanks for the use of our theme music, which is the song Drop by Ketza. You can find more of their music online at ketza.uk. You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at Date These Guys, or visit our website at datetheseguys.org. If you have questions you'd like us to discuss in the podcast or marriage proposals for either of us, shoot us an email at datetheseguys at gmail.com. If you're looking to make an impact, this show recommends giving either time or money to Planned Parenthood, a nonprofit organization that provides reproductive health care in the United States and globally. Planned Parenthood clinics and affiliates provide birth control and long-acting reversible contraception, clinical breast examinations, cervical cancer screenings, pregnancy testing, prenatal care, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, and abortions. Planned Parenthood also does great work for those who can't afford traditional medical services. Approximately four out of five of their clients have incomes at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. Both Joel and Naomi are monthly donors to Planned Parenthood. You could be too. The intro and outro music of Why Will No One Date These Guys is from the song Drop by the artist Ketza. It is licensed through Creative Commons, and we are deeply appreciative that they've allowed us to use it. 